Good. I'd like to ask for your attention again. Um, I've had various notes thanking me and complaining about <laughs> the loudness and voice. We're, um, we had some adjustments made, so I hope this works better. If not, we'll keep making adjustments. But it is likely to remain to some degree unsatisfactory. These systems have uh, various um, qualities. Some of them can really get medical. Yeah? So you can get intimate reports of my, the progress of my digestive systems if they're really, really in. More than you want to know about me. And sometimes they are full of interference and static. And, um, so, you can optimize yourself. Uh, make sure that your hearing aid is connected to the loop. Make sure that you sit in line with the loudspeakers. Make sure that you can lip-read uh, so that you have a proximity to me that allows you to do this. Um, my own ability to modulate my voice is limited for a variety of reasons. Barking meditation instructions is somehow counterproductive. I've tried it, believe me. And I have some hesitance hesitancy to go about this that way. So we will probably have to live with something that is not quite as perfect as we could imagine. Coming back to meditation proper, uh, all big meditation traditions have understood and emphasized that it is important to connect our capacity to be aware with body experience. Every big meditation tradition has understood this. The magic of mindfulness only starts to work if our mindfulness is actually connected to an embodied sensate process. So, witnessing thoughts doesn't do the same in terms of lowering your stress levels, uh, minimizing your nocturnal cortisone releases and such like, if you're into such things, as does actually bringing your attention to felt, sensate, embodied processes. So in other words, this is a challenge for meditators to bring attention repeatedly and in an undivided and in a continual way as possible to bodily processes. Now habitually we're not very interested in bodily processes. We're interested in bodily processes if we're experiencing pleasure, yeah. We enjoy it if these bodies experience pleasure, comfort, lust. Um, we, you know, willy-nilly go along with giving these bodies attention if they experience pain and discomfort. But there's a huge chunk in the middle where we basically prefer to stick to our ideas and concepts rather than to attend to the gradual movements of your breakfast through your peristaltic apparatus. Yeah. So, there's a lot of favoritism going on in our attention. Our attention is not neutral. Yesterday, I claimed that attention always has a flavor, an affective flavor. And today I'd like to double up and say our attention is never coming from a neutral position. We always come from a place where we have needs, where we have conditioning, where we have a particular situation. So, our attention is not exempt from this. If we're very afraid, then we have a different type of attention than when we're in a savoring mode. Acknowledging 
the tendency of attentional focus, we probably come to agree that most of our attention goes to cognitive and discursive activity for most of the time. If our bodies are not experiencing dramatic states of pleasure or dramatic states of pain, we probably attend habitually to thought, discursive activity, images, concepts in our mind. We probably even think that this is normal. Neurologists would tell us this is in fact normal. This is the default mode network. <laughs> yeah. So, um, unfortunately, while this has some use in terms of evolution, it doesn't really have much use in terms of waking up. The tragic case uh, is the divergence between what is useful for evolution is not necessarily useful for happiness, for waking up. We can be, according to evolution, quite successful and yet remain quite miserable, depressed, and still we populate the planet, we procreate in some way, and we, we, we are the success story in terms of evolution that we are. That doesn't stop us from being depressed or unhappy, miserable ourselves and making others miserable. So we have to acknowledge that what is good in terms of attentional habit is not necessarily what is good for happiness and freedom. So having acknowledged this, we notice that our attention habitually goes not to the body. It goes generally to things we think, comments, statements, attempts to conceptualize the world we experience, and um, a lot of energy is dispensed on a character called I, a very suspicious character, who seems to be the main protagonist of my story. And I'm really preoccupied with the narrative of this protagonist's fairings in the world. And, and you know, who, whose life isn't a drama? whose life doesn't feel like, you know, big and hopeful and um, devastating. If you're not there, wonderful, I can only congratulate you. So, our attention habitually does not go to posture, it does not go to breath, it does not go to the rhythms of this body, it does not go to the meandering gentle tone uh, in our muscles and in our uh, fascia. It generally goes to who am I, what do I need to do, where was I yesterday, where would I like to be, what's happening, this is a strange thing to be in here, you know, what is, he, what she's, what is she thinking, why, doesn't this, why do I don't, not get what I want? Usually we're in this kind of mode. Now there's a lot less freedom in that kind of mode and a lot less transformative power. So let's acknowledge that much of the exercises we do here are counterintuitive, insofar as they are a deviation from what I usually do. Think about myself, think about the world, think about the people around me. If I'm being asked to attend to my breath, this sounds simple enough, but it is actually quite a radical deviation from my usual way of giving attention. Usually my attention is called by things. My attention is going to things that, th that seem 
to call my attention. In other words, I don't actually give it, it's kind of pulled out of me. It's pulled out of me by simple intensity, what's new, what's strong, and what's on offer. Yeah? Much of my attention is interested in gratification. Says, where can I get something? Where's the softest cushion, the nicest place? Uh, where is um, yeah, the nicest smile? Uh, what, what will be for breakfast? Uh, and so forth. Yeah. I'm interested in gratification of sorts. So my attention is focusing on either, if I'm interested in, if, I'm, if my temperament is more desire-oriented, I'm interested in enjoying things. If my temperament is more aversion-based, then uh, it will look like, uh, let me get away from this fat person. I'm sure he's going to make noises in meditation. There's a draft there. I want to sit close to the door so that I can get out quickly. Uh, where's the thickest cushion? Uh, where, where will I not be seen? Uh, where will I be seen? Yeah. So our attention will do this kind of thing. If you're more of the doubtful uh, temperament and you think, ah, oh, am I doing it wrong? I know, I'm sure they're all much further than I am. I'm sure these guys are really quiet, look, and I'm just crazy. If they only saw what was going on in my mind, you know, they're all having such angelic faces and I'm just a mess. So our attention does this sort of thing. Depending on, on our temperament and character and your socialization, all of these things, <clears throat> They feel bad when you're there, and all of them are not really very transformative. So returning attention from any of these narratives to our breath or to the posture is in fact quite a relief, although it doesn't promise immediate gratification. And that's the first challenge for meditators. They need to, to get out of the economy of gratification seeking and avoiding discomfort in the stewardship of their attention. Now this is quite radical because that goes so quickly that my attention goes to things that I like to enjoy and tries to move away from things that I uh, do not enjoy. This is such a quick movement that most of the time we do not even acknowledge that there is a movement. We don't even acknowledge that there is a choice. This is just how it feels. This is just how it organically develops. Truth is, there is a choice. If we recall that we do have a choice, we are in a much better position to actually make such a choice. Meditation teachings across the board are quite radical. They suggest you attend to process, not because it feels good. You attend to process, not because the body, not because you get gratified. You attend to the body because it's happening, because it's there, and because it's tangible, it's usually slow, and it takes you to the present moment. That's the magic about the body. You always get the present moment. As soon as you have a body component in your experience, you always get the present moment. You never get yesterday's knee pain. You never get tomorrow's migraine. Whenever you connect with the body, you automatically have an anchor in the present tense. Now this is really powerful. This is really dramatic, because much of the preoccupations of our attention is not necessarily about the present moment. 
As you know, I'm not sure what your minds are like, but my mind is capable of regurgitating the same old story an umpteenth time and trying to rejig my past in a little different way, and yet this is not very transformative or fret about something I can't do anything about because it's happening in the future. This is also not very transformative. So all mindfulness traditions, all meditation traditions have understood before we can transform anything, we need to actually arrive at the place where it's happening, and that is the present moment. And the guarantee to be in that present moment is the body. What the body feels, how the body is oriented in space, what the body senses in its inner realms, and what my immediate sensory input tells me. The birds are tweeting just now. This is not yesterday's birds or a fantasy of tomorrow's birds. This is today's birds. Yeah. So as soon as I orient to my senses and to the body, in its posture, in its interoception, its proprioception, its tactile experiences, I am here. Here is the place. In fact, here is the only place where I can be happy, where I can be free, where I can understand something, where I can experience connection, and where I can wake up. There's no other place where you can do all this. Even if your intent to be here is um, bloody-minded sensory indulgence, you better be doing practicing practices to help you come into the present moment, because there is no other moment for sensory indulgence than now. But, as you know, it's, even, it's difficult to practice serious sensory indulgence. It's quite hard to sustain the capacity to be present for sensory indulgence. Um, because uh, even if you enjoy things and want to indulge in them, you, you, you start thinking, oh, will this last forever? How much will this cost? What will I do when that stops? Does she have a bigger one over there? Yeah. We will, even if we're bent on sheer enjoyment, not even on waking up, we find it actually difficult to be present. I had this insight at the breakfast table many, many years ago, waiting for my bread in the morning, self-baked bread, good Swiss butter, and homemade jam. I really anticipated that, prepared it, first bite, as glorious as I imagined it. And while I was savoring that first bite, and it really was in the fullness of giving all my, um, you know, giving off its wonderful, uh, taste, I found myself thinking, what would the second bite be like? <laughs> yeah. It was quite clear to me that the second bite is unlikely to outdo the first one, which I was still savoring. And the intensity of that anticipated first bite that completely delivered, yeah? uh, there was nothing disappointing in this, and yet this wasn't strong enough to hold my attention on it. Yeah? Already while enjoying the anticipated gratification, I felt my mind wandering off to the possibility of the next one. So, which is pretty disheartening if you actually follow this through. It means that even if we get exactly what we want, even if it delivers exactly what we expected it would, uh, we end up messing it up because we can't actually take it in. We can't take in the goodness. Now that is much 
That sums up much of our experience. We can't take in the goodness. The only way to take in the goodness is to be here. And to be here makes us vulnerable. It makes us meet our impatience. It makes us meet our constructs of past and future. It makes us meet sometimes uh, things that are in this present moment that are not to our liking. So this is a skill arriving at the present moment. And that skill is practiced with body awareness, with forms of embodied attention. That's what Kaya Nupassana is about. Kaya Gatasati is about. The practice of attending to the body as experienced and staying with the sensations and basically four aspects of these sensations. Their appearance, their increase, their decrease and their disappearance. If it is too complicated, just appearance, disappearance, appearance, disappearance. Or increase, decrease, increase, decrease. An in-breath kind of builds up, there's a little crescendo, then it tapers off. There's a rhythm to it. So that is what body awareness is uh, largely about. There are different facets of it. Satipatthana teachings have six compartments of body awareness. Um, the crucial one for today is basically posture. So let us be very specific about posture. Sorry to bore some of you old hands in here. Um, I'm conscious that we have quite a number of newcomers to Gaia and newcomers to uh, such retreats. So let me be very specific. This is a blessing that comes to us from the Japanese tradition. It's called the Zafu. And some of these Zafus contain a material called Kepok which loves being pummeled, yeah? So if you have one of these things and you appreciate its job, it's doing for your posture, pummel it. They like being pummeled and then they get back their loft, yeah? Now think of this thing not as a piece of upholstery. This is, think of this thing as a wedge. This is a, a cushion and the idea of this cushion is to act as a wedge. Yeah, so you sit not on top of it, but you actually sit on its edge. Yeah? And then you put a hand in the small of your back, the back of your hand into the small of your back, please try. And on your belly. And you actually feel, feel a, a slight tilt of your pelvis. There's quite a dramatic thing for your spine. Now I'd like you to feel how you fill up the small of your back. I know there's a natural S-curve which has great value in walking and running. For sitting, you actually want to make sure that you give weight right through your sit bones into the cushion by filling out the small of your back. Yeah. That should increase the weight on your sit bones and your buttocks, and it should make that lumbar area very vertical. That's the first area. Whenever you sit down, however, however long you've been meditating, this is what you're doing. You connect with that part of your body. And you make sure that you ground yourself. Don't start at the top. Start at the bottom. Yeah. So make sure you bring as much of your weight as possible into your hips, onto the cushion, and make sure that your pelvis is in such a position, roll back a tiny little bit so that you do not hollow the small of your back. The traditional meditation posture is kind of Push out, push out your belly, hollow your back, 
widen your chest, compensate with your head. Yeah. Obviously you can do this, but it is strenuous and it is not very solid. So, if you sit like that, <coughs> um, fold your legs, this is a very good posture. The basic idea is get as much of yourself onto the mat as possible. This is not about Buddhism, this is just physics. This is distribute the weight of your body onto as much surface as possible. Not because it looks pretty, because it reduces the pressure of your body weight. So, once you're clear what's happening here, you try to open your chest. You know, particularly the upper part of the chest is crucial. Many of us are reading, bent over keyboards, screens, papers, and it's necessary that you keep widening widening here. Yeah? Um, it seems to be that contemplatives and people be, uh, inclined to meditate have a sort of a natural tendency to invert upon themselves and kind of in incline over their navels. So you need to counteract this. When, you, when you're sure your hips are here and your, your pelvis is in a good posture, you open your chest. That's the big second key area. Even if you feel this is exaggerating, or this is embarrassing, or you may feel conceited, just acknowledge such emotions, but make sure that this area, the bronchial area, is you breathe into it, as if you're actually slightly inflating that area. And the next big key area is your head. Yeah? Looking for a good fulcrum for your head. Now the, the tool for that is your chin. Yeah, you can do a very zenish sort of number and kind of pull in your chin, exaggerate, or you could put your chin forward. In fact, I encourage you to do that right now, exaggerate in both, both directions. Yeah, really exaggerate. It's amazing what a neck can do. And then you're trying to find a place, close your eyes for a moment, you're trying to find a place where your head has the least amount of weight. None of our sensation is really very reliable, but the, the sensations of weight are generally the most reliable of the unreliable ones. Yeah? So getting a sense of the weightiness of your head and where that head has the least amount of weight can, give, can be an indication where on the trajectory of your chin from being pulled in to being pushed forward is the best place for your head. I'm cheating, I'm using a little image from coming from the Alexander Technique, and this is basically, think of a string puppet. Think of being suspended from the top. Like a string puppet, so with an elongated neck, exaggerate that a bit, and then drop into that image. So. Now I'd like to suggest that you do this every time you sit down. Every time you spend several minutes actually acknowledging your posture, acknowledging the rhythm of your breath, acknowledging the various parts, you go, you quickly scan your key areas, pelvis, lumbar area, make sure that the belly has enough space, that your belts and uh, buttons are loose enough that your breath can freely move your belly, then upper chest, so that your 
opening out. Imagine somebody gently strokes you on the spine, downward between your shoulder blades. And here your sternum is kind of opening up. Yeah? So back at the back you're going down and at the front you're going up a little bit. Your shoulders are dropping, foreheads are unclouded. We're working on the smile later on in the week. So. You're breathing out. You're feeling the weight of your hands and your legs are in your lap. And you're sensing into the fulcrum of your head. Where is the optimum place for this head? Gently moving your chin forward and back in, and actually trying it out. You know, the sad thing is we get habituated to everything we do normally. So after a while, whatever we do normally starts to feel normal. However unstrenuous it is, however unhappy it is, however crooked it is, it starts to feel normal after a while. So we need to actually go back away from this normal and find out reliable ways to connect with a reality that is beyond the reality of our habituated norms. So once you've done that, and obviously you can do a zoomed version of this every time you sit down, whatever we are going to speak of, in these coming days. This is what you do at the beginning of a meditation session. And once you've done that, you connect with what's going on inside. What is different? I've mentioned the magic questions. They're very simple. What's happening? How does it feel? Can I connect with it? Can I enter into relationship with it? These are three different modes of attention. The first one is orienting. The second one is resonating and connecting. The third one is actually seeking a continued relationship with an aspect of our experience. All three are crucial. And all three can easily be remembered. Just three little questions and you're right in the midst of meditation. What's happening? How does it feel? Can I be in relationship with this? And this can be anything. It can be a sensation, it can be a mood, it can be sounds, it can be an emotion. But most powerfully, it is the state of this body's experiences right now where its weight goes, how this weight is distributed, the tone of this body, various possibly dominant sensations, a knotty shoulder, a solid small of the back, a tingling hand, any such thing. And then the rhythms of this body, a heartbeat, the pulse of the breath that moves through us.
Try to hold that attention quite wide and open. Don't try to force it into the tip of your nose. At this stage, we're not trying to be very small or very sharp. Or Some of you may know that there's teachings about Buddhist meditation that speak of one-pointedness. Now be aware that one-pointedness is not something you do, it's something that occurs. It is not a practice suggestion, it's the description of a state of great mental focus. It, you cannot sharpen your mind. You can just invite it to be in the present moment and attend, welcome in welcoming ways, to something as simple and as soothing as your breathing. So let us try to do this. Acknowledge where does this breath go, how deep is the deepest sensation connected with this breath. Which parts of this body are moving when I breathe? We know lots about the physiology of breathing. But what do I actually feel? Again, you're not feeling wrong things. If you do feel it, then this counts. Even you may think, this is not what I would like to feel, or I don't feel enough of it, or this is the wrong thing. When you do feel your body breathing, then you're already practicing. So let us do that. Just there's two base, two two parts to this. What I call Plan A. This is the exercise. Right now, the exercise is attending in an as undivided fashion as possible to the stream of sensations connected to breathing in, breathing out. The, appearance, the increase, the decrease, the disappearance of that sensation. That is plan A. Plan B is when I notice I'm not doing this, when I notice the mind is doing something else, my attention has wandered off. That's when plan B comes into play. Plan B consists in acknowledging what you're doing, <coughs> thinking, remembering, planning, fretting, commentating, uh, fantasizing, whatever it may be. You acknowledge that this is what's happening and then you return your attention by choice back to the sensations of your breathing. Return it to the place where you find it's most easy to feel the body breathing. So plan A, the actual exercise. Plan B, what you do when you find you're not doing the exercise. Now when you do plan B, you do that kindly. You're not giving orders. You're not passing judgments. You're not holding opinions. Plan B is as if a mother takes her child by the hand and 
a child that is distracted and the mother takes it by the hand and says, come, come look here, come back here and look, feel. So, in that attitude, warmly, gently, but with some emphasis, encouraging your child breath or your child attention to return back to the breath. Yeah? So, let us practice this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.